All right, we're going to be in Genesis 9 this morning. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. Uh, I wanted to back a step up and talk about what happens when people leave the ark. They were in the ark for 371 days. I bet it smelled bad. And I bet that Noah and his family and the animals, when they left the ark, um, were very happy about it, happy to get off. But what they saw when they left the ark was nothing like what the land was like when they got in the ark. It was radically different. They traveled hundreds of miles, but even if they hadn't traveled any miles at all, when they came off the ark, it would have been much different than what they saw when they left. The land had been reformed by the flood. And then also formed by earthquakes and volcanoes and tectonic shifts. Many of those would have continued after the flood. When they came out, there was no organized vegetation. There weren't any cultivated lands to grow grain from. There weren't any orchards. There weren't any vineyards. All that had to be redone and restarted. And the land itself was different. They landed on Mount Ararat, which is uh, about 17,000 feet tall. But Noah and his family, when they entered the ark, had never seen a mountain anywhere near that tall. Mountains were formed by the flood and by those earthquakes and volcanoes and storms and tectonic movements that we talked about. And when they came out of the ark, there would have been the land, much of it would have been covered with mud and silt. And then Noah, as time went on, he would have experienced much wider fluctuations in temperature and humidity, humidity than he had been used to. Eventually deserts were formed and Noah had never seen a desert. When the flood ended, there would have continued great storms for some time and volcanoes and, and earthquakes. So while it was great to get out of the ark, getting out of the ark wasn't all that fun. Scientists postulate that after the flood, uh, there would be storms, big storms that would continue and would have caused in many places on the planet uh, something called a mass wasting. Essentially, a mass wasting is a huge landslide. Now, Nancy and I, being from Southern California, are very used to landslides. We usually call them mudslides there. And after a rain or a storm, sometimes just basically the whole side of a hill would go away, along with the homes that uh, were on it. But these are, these mass wastings are much, much bigger. I've got a slide I'd like to show you. This is slide one. That is uh, Hart Mountain. Hart Mountain is in, in, is in Cody, Wyoming, near Yellowstone. But where Hart Mountain is right now, that chunk of rock was not where it started. It started 30 miles away from there, and it was carried as a result of storms and further flooding and other activity, uh, 30 miles, basically in one shot, and it landed there. Things were quite different when they left the ark. But Noah was faithful. He built the ark when God commanded it. He entered the ark when God commanded it. He left the ark when God commanded it. And as he left the ark, shortly after, I'm sure, he made an altar, and he offered a sacrifice to God out of thankfulness to God for preserving them, out of 
gratefulness for God's faithfulness. And God responded. Nate talked about this last Sunday. I want to review it for a moment. Genesis eight twenty through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God said that in his heart. He said it to himself. But that wasn't the end of his response. He would speak to Noah directly uh, in chapter 9, and that's what we're going to look at today. And God made two very important points to Noah, one about blessings and one about rainbows. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for rainbows because of the reminder to us of what you have done and what you have promised never to do again to bring a worldwide flood. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your preservation of Noah and his family so that they and then their descendants and their descendants all the way down to us could have a chance to come to know you and to come to have faith in you through Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. Open our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, blessings and instructions. So one of the things I like about Scripture is that when you read the Scripture in many places, what you're reading is the very words of God. We see that in the Old Testament prophets a lot. We see that, of course, in every word that Jesus spoke. And we see it in this passage. Except for some introductory words in uh, verse 1, verse 8, verse 12, and verse 17, every word that's in this passage are the very words of God as he spoke them to Noah. So let's hear some of those words. Genesis 9, 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every morning, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So God bless Noah. And what follows is this blessing also containing instructions. And as with any blessing of God, it's not just something nice to hear. When God blesses someone, he gives them the power to accomplish what he blesses them for. He did that with Abraham. He blessed Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a source of nations and the source of kings. And this passage in verses 1 and verse 7 uh, are bracketed by those two verses that say essentially the same thing. This is a literary technique called an inclusio. Inclusio emphasizes and highlights what comes between those two phrases. Psalm 8, it won't be on the screen, but Psalm 8 is, has an example of an inclusio. Both the first and the last verse of Psalm 8 say this. I'm going to sing this. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. (laughs) I won't do that anymore, I promise. But that's an inclusio. That's at the beginning of the psalm and at the end of the psalm. And so God blesses Noah and he gives Noah some instructions. The first instructions are about filling. He tells Noah what he wants Noah to do. And he tells Noah the importance of what he wants him to do. This first instruction is to have, to put it simply, to have lots of kids. And it's summed up in four commands that that God gives. The first command is to be fruitful. Used in verse 1 and verse 7, it means to reproduce, and it's associated with God making them fruitful. God did this, as I said, with Abraham. The second word is multiply. Used once in uh, verse 1 and twice in verse 7, it means to become numerous. The word is associated with status. In the ancient world, when you had a lot of kids, that gave you a high status. That indicated that you were blessed by God. And the opposite was, if you didn't have kids, that you were not blessed by God. You might remember Naomi calling herself bitter when she lost her two sons. You may remember Hannah, who was in pain and anguish because she was childish, childless. The third word is fill, means to Fill up. Fill up to the brim. Fill up to the top. It's associated with completion and satisfaction. If you uh, filled your gas tank up this weekend, you're probably satisfied that you can now go 300 miles or so. Your miles mileage may vary. <laughs> Although you might have been sad at the cost of filling up your tank. The idea of filling is, is expressed well in Exodus 1-7. And it's interesting that this verse uses all these four verbs that we've been talking about, these commands. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And then the fourth command, increase, used just in verse 7. It means to make a lot. It's associated with strength. In other contexts, it can mean overrun, like the frogs from the plague in Egypt overran. Egypt. So you get the picture. God wants Noah and his family and descending humans to be to fill up the land. It's not arbitrary. It's not just so grandparents will have something to do with their grandkids when they get old. And nor is it a desire on God's part to overpopulate the planet. This is a grace of God. It reflects his desire to have a human family. It reflects his desire to have a human family who would be with him. And who would rule with him. And this sounds a lot like another command that God gave a little bit earlier to Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So let's talk about instructions about eating. So that verse we just read. God gave the same command to fill the earth to Adam and Eve. But there's a big difference, a serious difference, between the command in Genesis 1.28 and the command here in Genesis 9. Genesis 1, God commanded Adam and Eve to fill the earth and to rule over it, to subdue it, and to exercise dominion. That's absent from the command in Genesis 9. The human's role... In Genesis 1 was to be in full command, 
full control over the planet and its inhabitants, all under God's authority, and it would be, of course, a benevolent control. In Genesis 9, while the mandate to rule is still in effect, the conditions of that rule are quite different, at least as it comes as it is uh, when it comes to animals. The rule human will have over animals now will not be benevolent. It will not be harmonious. But rather, the animals are going to be in fear and dread of humans. The words there combined mean terror. Now, this doesn't mean that humans can't have good relationships with animals. Many of us have pets. I have an insane dog. But it does mean that the driving force of the relationship between humans and animals will be one of contention, and generally on the part of the animals, it will be one of terror. And the rule by humans over animals, as it's easy to see, is often less than benevolent. In Genesis 1, the rule of humans, while complete, was conducted in the absence of sin and under the authority of God. After Genesis 9, humans no longer will rule rule animals in the sense of Genesis 1, but the animals will be given into the hand of humans. That phrase, into the hand of, is a OT euphemism that means power. And in terms of humans, it's often used in the context of harm and of judging and of conquering. Humans will have power over the animals, but it will often be coercive and cruel. And it will not always go unchallenged. Animals sometimes bite. So humans now can kill animals for food. God in Genesis 1 told Adam and Eve that they could have all the green plants for food. And now God tells Noah, yes, you can still have the green plants, but you can also eat animals. Humans will have this source of food. No wonder the animals are terrified. And as unpleasant as this may be, we need to see this giving of animals to humans for food as another grace of God. As Caleb likes to say, it's a common grace. It's a grace of God that is given despite sin, and it is for all people. It's a good thing to give thanks before a meal. And then instructions about image. About the eating of animals, God gives this instruction to Noah. He says, when you eat an animal, you must not eat its blood, because the blood is the life of the animal. So eating blood is not just a prohibition for, um, for sanitary purposes. And it's not symbolic. Blood equals life. Leviticus tells us what the sacrificial blood accomplishes. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And of course we can think of this as that it's a price to be paid. And here is another grace of God is a gift of life for the life of the human. This recalls the first sacrifice that God performed when he killed animals to provide skins for Adam and Eve. It recalls much of the Old Testament law that required the blood, lifeblood of an animal to atone for, to cover the sin of a human. And as we studied in Hebrews, in uh, Hebrews 9, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And it points to a greater more perfect sacrifice of blood for humans, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So God has given this instruction not to eat the blood, but now he takes this instruction and he moves on to another one related to it. God says in verse 5 that he will require a reckoning, a price for the shedding of blood of a human. That is for the willful, the unlawful killing of one person by another. The reckoning is punishment to death, physical death of the one who killed a human, whether it be human or animal. The reason for this reckoning is twofold. First, all humans are related and are brothers and sisters of one another. When God says, uh, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning, that word fellow or fellow man there is the Hebrew word that means brother. When a murderer kills, he kills his brother or his sister who is made in God's image. Now we understand this idea of, of being brothers and sisters as, as Christians. We are brothers and sisters of one another in God's family. But this passage tells us that we have a familiar uh, relationship between all humans because we are all made in God's image. Now, we humans have thoroughly messed that up by our sin, but even so, if you are a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, you are my brother or my sister because you and I are both made in the image of God. This instruction was so important to God and so important that to God that God that humans get this, that in verse six, God required humans to exact this punishment of death from a human who willfully and unlawfully killed another human. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Verse six here is often seen as the first institution of human government in the form of capital punishment. And even here, there's a grace of God. Perhaps a severe grace, but a grace nonetheless, because that we are made in God's image requires a high view of humans by humans. We don't do that very well. It doesn't take much looking around to see that more and more humans are thought of by other humans not as made in God's image, but as unimportant animals. Thought uh, made only of flesh as a result of an accident of nature. Humans kill humans all the, all the time. I was surprised to learn that in 2022, Rochester had the fifth larger murder rate in the nation. Now, in this, of course, there is room for mercy. There is room for forgiveness. Jesus called blessed those who were merciful. In a parable, Jesus taught that as we have been forgiven, we should forgive. Cain wasn't killed for murdering Abel. David was not killed for murdering Uriah. And David was forgiven by God for the murder of Uriah. At the same time, though, we do need to recognize that human government often fails. (laughs) Pretty easy to recognize. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology says this, One of the primary means God uses to restrain evil in the world is human government. Human laws and police forces and judicial systems provide a powerful deterrent to evil actions. 
and these are necessary, for there is much evil in the world that is irrational and that can only be restrained by force because it will not be deterred by reason or education. Of course, the sinfulness of man can also affect governments so that they become corrupt and actually encourage evil rather than good. This is just to say that human government, like all other blessings of common grace that God gives, can be used for either good or for evil purposes. Yet, the principle of humans carrying God's image is so deeply significant, deeply significant to God, and should be so deeply significant to us that those who disregard the image of God in others as to willfully and unlawfully take the life of an image-bearer of God must be held to account. All will be held to account. And those who do not physically kill are not exempt. Jesus said that those who harbor anger toward another is liable to judgment. But for those who believe in Christ, and please catch this, for those who believe in Christ, the penalty of eternal death and separation from God, even for murder, has already been paid by Jesus Christ. Jesus so valued the human, the uh, image of God in humans that he died for humans. For those who do not believe, the ultimate penalty of eternal separation from God still waits. And then the second part of what God said to Noah, Genesis 9, 8-17. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Then God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So in verse 7, God told Noah what Noah must do. In these verses, God tells Noah what God will do. These verses are also formed as an inclusio where it begins in verse 8 and ends in verse 17 that says the same thing, that God is establishing the covenant. And of course, we can think of a covenant uh, by the things that nearly all ancient covenant covenants have in common. Covenants have the parties to the covenant. The covenant has the terms of the covenant and then the guarantee of the covenant. So let's think about the covenant parties. A typical ancient covenant has two parties could be two individuals, like uh, the covenant between no- uh, Boaz and, his, and Naomi's relative, relative. It could be between an individual and a group, like a covenant between a king and his subjects. It could be a covenant between two groups, and so on. The Noahic covenant, as it's called, is typical in that it has two parties. God is one, of course. He's the one who initiates the covenant. He's the one who establishes the covenant. 
He sets all the terms and the conditions. There's no negotiation. There's nothing for the other party to do. The other party of this covenant is comprised of two groups. And they're big groups. The first group contains billions of participants, humans. One estimate is that there have been about 117 billion people that have lived on the earth through today. Of course, that'll have to be adjusted tomorrow when he figures it out. The second group is all living creatures. One estimate of all the living animals on the earth today is 20 quintillion. I don't know how much that is. It's a lot, yeah. It's 20 billion billion. It's 20 with 18 zeros after it. This covenant God made with Noah includes all animals and all humans that have lived, that are living, and all that will ever live on the earth. If this was a modern contract, the signature page would be quite large. And then there's the covenant terms. Every covenant has terms. Typically, one party will agree to do something, and the other party will agree also agree to do something. In the covenant between Boaz and Naomi's relative, the relative of Naomi agreed to give Boaz the right to redeem the land and all that went with it, including Ruth. And then Boaz agreed to redeem the land. In a covenant between the king and a king and his subjects, the king might agree to provide protection in return for the loyalty and obedience of his subjects. The terms of the Noahic covenant are laid out in verse 11, and they are very simple. God will never bring a worldwide flood again on the earth, and he will never destroy all life by a flood. That's it. Signature page of the covenant, as I said, would be very huge. The content page of the covenant would be small. There are no more terms. There's nothing required of humans or animals, no steps to take, to take nothing to give up, no acts to perform. This covenant is unconditional. This covenant is made with those who have faith in God and with those who do not. This covenant is made with those who seek to live righteously and with those with who living righteous is a non-starter. It's made with those who trust Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation and it is made with those who don't. Those who even are passively or actively, actively opposed to Jesus Christ. The covenant is also everlasting. Now somebody might raise their hand and say, no, wait a minute, isn't the earth going to be destroyed again? Well, yes, it is, but not by a flood. God had previously told Noah back in Genesis 8, where he said that as long as the earth exists, life will not cease. The earth will be destroyed again, but not by a flood. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. But in the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then there's the covenant guarantee. An ancient covenant would be confirmed by a sign, some symbol, some gesture. In the case of Boaz and Naomi's relative, the relative gave uh, Boaz his sandal. In our day, the the confirmation 
is usually the signed contract. If you've ever signed a mortgage contract, the, it seems like hundreds of times you had to sign it and all the initials. That's the sign of that covenant, of that contract, is the contract itself. The sign of the Noahic covenant is a rainbow. We've all seen rainbows. Sometimes you only see a portion of a rainbow. When I see a rainbow, I like to try and see where it touches the ground. I want to show you some pictures of rainbows. This is a, what do you call it, typical rainbow? Standard rainbow? (laughs) Uh, It's in northern Chile. The next one, it's a circular rainbow. Uh, If you ever had the fortune, good fortune to be in an airplane flying above clouds that have a lot of water vapor, you might you might see that. Next one. Double rainbow. Most of us have seen that. This was a picture taken in Kenya. Uh, and then the next one, a grand rainbow, sometimes called a uh, supernumerary rainbow. It's typically thin, and its colors tend to be more pastel, and they usually appear between the inner or beneath the inner arch of a primary rainbow. This was taken at the Grand Canyon. Next one, a reflection rainbow. This, um, is that the right one? Go ahead and go to the next one. I think I got this out of order. Okay. This is a reflected rainbow. It reflects off of wet surface. The next one. Uh, okay, here we go. This is a red rainbow. It's a monochrome color. It appears at sunrise or sunset. And only the uh, long wavelength red colors are visible. Never seen one of those. The next one. This is a fog bow. It lacks brilliant colors and it's caused, caused by smaller raindrops. This is taken in Greenland. And then the last one. This is a moon bow. And it's produced by light reflected from the moon. I've never seen a moon bow. This was taken in Victoria Falls in Zambia. All right. So God initiated this covenant. He set its terms. He made it everlasting. He required nothing from uh, the ones he made it with and guaranteed it with a sign. When God makes a sign, it's usually pretty spectacular. And then speaking to Noah, God says, when he brings clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears, that he, God, will remember the covenant that he made with you. Now, the word you there, certainly directed to Noah, but the word you is plural. And, of course, it extends to all living creatures, including you and you. Now, God's not going to forget the covenant. He doesn't need to be reminded about reminded about it. He made it. Uh, he doesn't need to be reminded about it in the way I need to be reminded by my calendar that I have a uh, doctor's appointment tomorrow. It's a physical. Not looking forward to it. We need reminding. So why does God say that he'll remember when he sees the rainbow? The Hebrew trans- the word translated remember is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And it often means something that might be forgotten. But in several places, in reference to God, it means something different. It doesn't mean that God needs to remember something that's forgotten. One place is in Ezekiel sixteen fifty nine through 60. 
where God says that he will keep his covenant despite the actions of those he made the covenant with. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. The rainbow will remind God of that which he has not forgotten to keep this unconditional and everlasting covenant that he made, that he acts upon, and will continue to act in accordance with because God made the covenant. He will be faithful to it. This remembering points to a greater covenant. In the same way God will act on the new covenant purchased by Christ's blood for all humans. He does not need to be reminded of it, and God will be faithful to it. So I'd like you to consider grace for a moment. I want you to think about the different graces of God that come out of this passage. The first one is simply that God provides food. I'm reminded when I read that of 2 Peter 1.3 where it says, God has provided everything that we need for life and godliness. Secondly, the common grace of God and the value that he places on you on every human, because you are made in his image. You know, before we believe in Christ, we are enemies of God. That's what the New Testament says. We are opposed to him. Yet, even in that state, even in that state of opposition to God, God values every human because they are made in his image. And then there's the common grace of human government. Now, as we discussed, governments can be corrupt. They can actually promote evil. But Paul recognized that even human government is in place because of God. He says in Romans 13 that there is no authority except by God's command. And then there's the common grace of the promise of the Noahic covenant to all humans that the world will not be destroyed by a worldwide flood. The reason for that is so that God's plan of redemption can be fully carried out. And then there's the special grace from God, providing the lifeblood of Jesus Christ for you and for me, who are not only made in God's image, but that we are now also God's imager. This special grace is available to everyone, but it's only received by faith. And then I'd like to consider your response to this grace of God that comes out of this passage. Every human is made in God's image. I think I've said that a lot today. Even those who are sinners, even those who willfully sin, even those who reject Christ, even those who reject you, those who sin against you, those who cause you pain, those who steal, those who kill, those who are homeless, and those who are addicted, even those we don't like. As God's imagers, we are, we are to serve them. We are to love them. We are to show them God. Show them God, their creator, by bringing the gospel to them. And as we are God's imagers, we are part of God's redemptive plan. We are part of the gospel that is to be preached to the world. And the reason for the Noahic covenant, God preserved humans so that they could hear the gospel. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patient and he doesn't wish for any to perish. 
but for all to come to repentance. And then how would you answer Peter's question? We read this passage just a little earlier. I want to read it again, this time in the NET translation, Second Peter 3, 11 through 13. Since all these things are to melt away in this manner, what sort of people must you be? Here's the question. What sort of people must you be, conducting your lives in holiness and godliness, while waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Because of this day, the heavens will be burned up and dissolved, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. Well, Peter asks the question, and he gives the answer. Live lives of holiness and godliness, patiently waiting for the day of God. And then lastly, next time you see a rainbow, I hope you will be reminded. I hope you will be reminded of God's rainbow covenant that he will never forget. I hope that you'll be reminded of his grace, both common and special. I hope you'll be reminded of his gospel redemption of your life. And having remembered all these things, I hope you'll worship. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the rain of the past couple days. I was really hoping to see a rainbow. <laughs> but thank you, Father, what the rainbow means and what it signifies to us that you have made this covenant with all human life and all animal life promising that you'll never destroy the world by a flood again to give everybody a chance to come to know Jesus Christ. And Father, as your children, the children of the family of God, those whom you have redeemed through the gospel, I pray, Father, that we would be truly your imagers, showing God to those around us who don't yet know you so that they can see this grace that you have given through Jesus Christ and so that they would believe. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.